So we've all been sitting here for a while now. And I suspect that many of us, if not all of us, have become very familiar with the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion that arise in our experience. That a retreat is a place that we become quite intimate with these mind states. And with that, I know in my own experience at times, it's like watching the mind get caught in the same patterns over and over and over again. And you just can't believe it. You know, it's like, oh, (laughs) here we are again. And, you know, sometimes it feels so binding, so tight, and it's like, whoa, you know, can feel just quite at a loss with it. It's like, okay, I see you. (laughs) All right, Mara, I see you. (laughs) And yet here it comes again. And so tonight I wanted to talk about these uh, three states of mind and how when we hit these deeply grooved trains of thought in the mind, that they actually can begin to emerge as um, temperaments that we have, where we might discover that we have a predominance of greed in the mind, where in our practice, in our lives, we are continually seeking out that which is pleasant. Or we find ourselves really craving a lot. You know, we, we have that thirst for uh, pleasant experience, for things, for experiences. You know, that we're driven by this desire for the pleasant. Some of us may be discovering that actually there's really a lot of aversion in the mind. And that, you know, we're always judging, wanting to get rid of, wanting to get away from, wanting to annihilate, wanting to throttle, wanting to strangle. (laughs) And it gets really painful. (laughs) And then some of us just sit here and go, have I learned anything in this time? You know, I sit here in this foggy confusion. I don't know what's going on. You know, I just, I'm befuddled by what's happening. And so, you know, we might begin to see that we have a predominance of one of these states of mind. And it's actually in the um, commentaries in a book called the Vasudhimaga, which was by Buddha Gosa, where he talks about how it's been observed by teachers that we do find that one of these states of mind might be more predominant than the others. And then, you know, it, we just, it creates our behavior in certain ways. It becomes a little bit more predictable. Now, in talking about this tonight, I want to hopefully do it in a way that we can use this information skillfully because there is a way where you can hear this and use it unskillfully, where you start to um, solidify your personality, a sense of self, in a way that isn't helpful. And you know that could be, a, well, I'm a greed type. And then every time there's um, something, you know, good food or whatever, you go, well, I'm a greed type. This is what I do. 
you know, <laughs> rather than the investigation of the state of greed, rather than using that for awakening. Or, you know, sometimes for myself, I, I will be telling you much more about it, but I am a deluded type. And so, you know, I have at times seen where, you know, I can hold myself as being really stupid, you know, and so, and then you start to fix and you create more suffering for yourself. Or sometimes we might become dismissive of others where, you know, I've certainly as a deluded type, one of the things that we're known for is not having a strong preference. So there might be a decision that needs to be made. And then someone just looks at me and says, oh, well, you know, we can do what they want to do because I don't have a preference anyways because I'm a deluded type. You know, and it's sort of like, hmm, wait a minute. <laughs> I've also, you know, seen it where someone may be an aversive type. And so they might have an opposing view and you just kind of dismiss it because you go, oh, they're just aversive. You know, so that is not helpful. So we really want to, one, be holding this in a light way and holding it in a way that helps us to depersonalize these states of mind because they are really conditioned responses. And what happens is, you know, we get in these grooves where, you know, we keep feeding greed and yeah, greed keeps arising. But it's okay because all of this is workable. All of this we can use in our, our as a means of awakening to become familiar with these tendencies. And as we do so, we actually begin to see how they can transmute into to something that's liberating, uh, into wisdom. So um, to be careful how we hold this information. I know for me, it was really helpful. The first time I heard a talk like this was from Sharon Salzberg. And she, too, is a deluded type. And one of the things that we commonly do is we doubt our own perception. And so just in my hearing her talk about it, it was, in some sense, life-changing. You know, suddenly, it, it really helped to depersonalize it. It wasn't that you know, I was always going to suffer from the pain of doubting my own perceptions, which, you know, at times is so blatant. It, you know, it can be quite unbelievable. So, um, yeah, holding this in a wise way. I have found that one other useful aspect to it can be in relating with others. In, you know, sometimes just when, um, for example, relating to somebody who has really strong aversive tendencies, many times we will ask them to do something and the first response will be no. You know, it's just blatant outright no. And in fact, it can feel like you've been slapped. <laughs> and then you just let it be. You give it space. And aversive types really have strong discriminating wisdom. And so very often I've seen that they'll come back and they'll be happy to do whatever you asked of them. But you know, the, the initial response was prickly. And just knowing that, it's been really helpful to me at times. Or it can be helpful to me with the, a person of greedy temperament in that you know they're raving about something and I can just 
put it in a bit of a perspective of, of the, the, you know, their infatuation with the pleasantness. Um, it just helps me to, me to stay more balanced. Because one of the things as a deluded type that um, I can often do is really look to others for how they feel and think about things because I have so much trouble distinguishing what I'm feeling. And so it, it just has been useful. Before I really go into them, too, I want to say that as well as having a prominence of greed, aversion, or delusion, that we can also have a prominence of non-greed, non-aversion, and non-delusion. So, and, and you know, in this way, it's really it's not a life sentence to discover that you are a greed type or one of greedy temperament, um, and that these wholesome states equally can be prominent. And also to say that we all have aspects of greed or experience, greed, aversion, and delusion. And so, uh, you know, sometimes we might be quite balanced in experiencing all of them. Or (laughs) (laughs) well-balanced, greedy, aversive, deluded type. But, but many times there is you know, one that is predominant. And then we often will find that we also have one that might be the rising sign, you know, where, where <laughs> it's a close second. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I'll share a teaching. And this is you know, just by way of how we can really learn to make friends with these states of minds. And this is from Sayadaw Utejaniya, you know, a Burmese monk who uh, just you know, has a very, um, well, he, he wrote a book called Don't Look Down on the Defilements or They'll Laugh at You, you know, that he is all for making friends with these states of mind. He says, to know reality, you have to be courageous. If to, you wish to arrive at the truth, you have to start meditating to be aware of yourself. The first thing you need to acknowledge is that there are defilements in your mind. This is basic. We all want to be good, and we therefore tend to see and show only our positive sides. If we don't face the defilements, we end up lying to ourselves and others. If you want to change for the better, you must know your negative sides. When you start seeing yourself in a realistic way and acknowledging both your good and bad qualities, you are doing well. So... You know, it's really just being able to see these forces. Is this too loud? No? Okay. So one of a greedy temperament. You know, someone who likes to really pay attention, seek out the beautiful things in life. You know, pleasant states of mind, pleasant sights, pleasant sounds, and can really use this as a way of determining what one might do. Um, there can be a real lust for life. You know, just the, you know, it's like ah, wanting to revel in life. You know, which can at times feel, you know, look really quite fun and delightful. 
you know, a, a greedy, one of a greedy temperament really knows how to have a good time. <laughs> They're, I found, have been great to go out to dinner with. They can pick the best food on the menu in no time. And for me, a deluded temperament, I can sit there and look at the menu all night. <laughs> so it can be really helpful. Um, but what happens is it's a way of like giving oneself over to the object of greed. You know, becoming enchanted with, um, placing your heart upon the, the promise of happiness of what that pleasant experience will be. And, you know, at this point, too, we know how short-lived those beautiful moments are, those beautiful experiences, those beautiful sound sights. You know, we really begin to see if we are living from this place of trying to find this happiness in all of these experiences, how tiring that might be. I've really noticed that um, animals and children are great at just acting right out the state of mind of greed. You know, that they don't have any filters on it. And it can be um, just quite beautiful to watch, in a sense, because it's not hidden. I, I remember this dog that I was very close to. His name was Max. And Max was definitely one of a greedy temperament. And he, one of the things that he just loved in life was to chase a stick. And, you know, to him, that was the ultimate experience. And so <laughs> you hold a stick up, and he would just go into a frenzy. And you could see, you know, his whole body would start to shake and ripple, and his eyes would fix on the stick. <laughs> and was, you could also see how painful it was. You know, the, the <laughs> It was, it was quite some. Everything else in the world disappeared, and he was just fixated on this stick. Oh, boy. And then children, you know, when they want something, you know, they will go to, you know, it's just like, give me, give me, <laughs> I want. <laughs> And, you know, how many times do we feel that? But, you know, we've learned little ways of hiding that, so it's not quite so obvious. <laughs> but the movement of mind can be the same. And, and, you know, I love retreats for the fact to see what the mind will want, <laughs> you know, what you can get into craving on a retreat. And, of course, when you get it, I mean, you know, it is never, never as good as what it seems it might be. You know, and it can feel like if you don't, you'll die if you don't get it. It can be so strong. The person of a greedy temperament tends to gloss over the difficulties in life. And you know, this has, you hear the saying, the cup is half full. You know, it's, it's always looking on the optimistic a brighter side of life, which again, you know, can have its values where you're not caught in the dreariness, the heaviness, the drudgery of life. But at the same time, it isn't fully meeting life. You know, I know earlier in my life, I was really trying to set up my life based on pleasant experience. 
where you know I loved the outdoors and I got a job in the outdoors and I had it worked out so I could work minimally. I worked in a ski area. I could work weekends and that meant I could ski all week. And I lived in a cabin and at one point I built the ca- a cabin and it was just really trying to set everything up so I could have a lot of pleasant experience. And then one day I just realized I was painting myself into a corner. That, you know, it was like excluding anything that didn't fit my model of what a pleasant life was going to be. And that that in itself took a huge amount of energy. And so, you know, it was seen that this was not really a sustainable way of life. In the Vasudhimaga, where, they, where it's talked about one of a greedy temperament, it says that they experience a lot of deceit, fraud, pride, greatness of wishes, wishes, evilness of wishes, discontent, foppery, and personal vanity. And I just want to say, as I go through all of these types, none of them are flattering. So <laughs> if you're identifying with one, it's a, um, you're not going to get flattered. <laughs> and there really isn't one that's better than any others. So um, <laughs> it's just, you know, it's, we become um, more familiar with how these manifest and see it in different ways that it manifests. You know, so, you know, Many times, one of a greedy temperament dresses really well, really impeccably. You know that there just is a great care to give into this, and actually can look quite beautiful. Um, but there's also can be in, within that a sense of personal vanity. In the Vasudhimaga, it's said that you can really look at people in their posture, in their actions, and how they eat, in the, the mind states that are prevalent, and determine the temperament of someone. And it goes through a description of each of these. Well, I went through the description, and I have altered it to uh, people coming to the retreat center to meditate. So I will, for each of these, be giving a description. And so this is for um, one of a greedy temperament arriving at the retreat center. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I actually had someone from the office read this today because I wanted to see if they had anything to add to it. So they verified that this is actually quite true. <laughs> On arriving at the meditation center, one of greedy temperament has already called the center to request the room that they perceive as the most favorably placed. <laughs> For example, it's the quietest. It has a view of the woods, and it has the best lighting. On arrival at the center, they go straight to the meditation hall to put their cushion down in the most favorable spot. And this is soon followed up by registering as quick as possible to get the yogi job of their choice. On arrival in their room, they immediately move the furniture to have the most aesthetically pleasing sense. And noticing that the room across the hall has a better chair, they quickly swap. (laughs) In dressing for meditation, the three temperaments are also distinguishable. The greedy temperament arrives in the hall with the latest stretch fabrics that always leave one looking elegant. (laughs) 
They have a shawl for every occasion. They're color coordinated and their socks are no exception. They have the latest in slip-on shoes and they leave their shoes in the cloakroom in the same spot every day, which allows them quick exit and entry. In walking meditation, the greed, one of greedy temperament appears to glide across the room and each step is carefully placed. In lining up for food in the dining hall, they just happen to be at the front of the queue day after day, standing with a poised ease. In the yogi job of wiping tables, they carefully wipe tables with strokes that are long and smooth, creating a beautiful even pattern of wetness. (laughs) In seeing impermanence, they see it as another opportunity. It might just be better than the last pleasant experience. (laughs) In discussing the types, the one of greedy temperament thinks they have the most fun and at times almost seems prideful of their type. Or they have a tendency to glorify it. They have been known to refer to themselves as the sensual types. In practice, we can see it playing out by way of um, having an inner hunger that propels us towards an unobtainable goal. Or we might start practicing for certain mind states or really a sense of wanting to get something, a lust for something that is not here or that we do not see. We see it play out in the way where we just sit down on the cushion and it's, you know, that sense of just trying to get everything just right. We want to sit where, you know, the the conditions are most favorable, where the, you know, the lighting is good, whether we like it dark or light, whatever, you know, our our preference might be. Um, You know, it's always trying to get things just right. Well, it's said that it's helpful for one of this temperament to practice where there's spat, where it's spattered with dirt, it's full of dirt, it's dilapidated, and it's in bleak surroundings, ugly and unsightly. <laughs> so you know that we uh, one of greedy temperament is is drawn to where it's beautiful, but what's really helpful is to practice where it's not so beautiful. It really just helps um, to work with this tendency. It's helpful in, for a person of greedy temperament to become more aware of suffering and to do practices that help to reveal that. So, you know, sometimes it's said to do practices such as just reflecting on the different 32 parts of the body. You know, because we tend to glorify the body and really just to see it in another way or to um, practice with the scene of impermanence because of this tendency to, to keep going for these things which are impermanent in their nature. So to really reflect on impermanence can be helpful. It's also help, said to be helpful to practice renunciation, you know, to really work with this in your life. 
that relinquishment, that letting go. And, you know, that could include the opening to the beauty of experiences, but that willingness to relinquish, the not hanging on. And that's also helpful to practice with generosity, with giving. You know, just that willingness of heart to share. An aspect for one of a greedy temperament is that there is a willingness to open to life, to come close, an intimacy you know, with all of this pleasant. And so what can happen as we become more aware of it is that instead of going towards that which is unreliable, that which is never going to bring us happiness, we, are, we start to look towards that which is reliable. We start to really uh, look towards the, the Dharma and, you know, can have a great faith and trust in that and a willingness to come close. Now, often you will find people who have this temperament are very passionate about the Dharma, really will apply themselves, give themselves over to the practice. So this is when it really becomes healthy, Um, not in the way of grasping, but where it starts to hit into that quality of faith and trust And there just becomes this deep dedication to the Dharma and that willingness and courageousness of heart to open to things as they are. So this is for one of greedy temperament. So then for the aversive temperament. You know, this is somebody who often experiences, you know, strong aversion to anything that is unpleasant, wanting to get rid of, uh, wanting to distance oneself. That there also, like, there comes a, a feeling to get, to be happy, one has to get rid of something. And so it's always that sense of pushing away um, of, wanting to distance or separate from. It's, it's like a relationship to life of resistance. And it's where life can feel quite miserable and that there you know, is just a parade of anguishing experiences. You know, that there, there isn't a sense of any kind of satisfaction. And you know, as if the food always tastes bad. Um, you know, fortunately, we do experience different, you know, that we aren't usually always just aversive, that we have a mix, because, you know, the, the aversion can be quite painful. And, that, you know, it is said, actually, that um, they have a quicker path because the pain is more obvious. You know, it's not masked, where for, with greed, it's harder to see the pain of that wanting mind because of the enchantment that comes. But it's much clearer to see the pain of aversion, to see that pain of always separating, that contraction of heart, that resistance to life. When it's strong, you know, it can even manifest as cruelty or wanting to harm um, others or desire to harm oneself. 
It has a characteristic of savageness, like a provoked snake. You know, it can at times be very biting. You know, it can be where we start to live life as if the other is the enemy. And, you know, the sense of always needing to protect or to get the better of. Um, and, you know, just reacting when there's the slightest grounds for annoyance. It's said that one of an aversive temperament experiences states of anger, enmity, disparaging, domineering, envy, and avarice. You know, these are all quite unpleasant states of mind, you know, not so easy to be with. And so this is the description of the aversive type arriving at the meditation center. The aversive type on arriving at the meditation center goes to the welcome room and is in immediate despair as this used to be their yoga room. (laughs) And as they walk into the dining room, which has also recently been renovated, they are appalled at the floor tiling. How could anyone choose this? As they register and are assigned a yogi job, they are forthright in why they can't do it. And on arriving in their room, they immediately notice the distant sound of a flushing toilet and return to the office to see if a room change is possible. (laughs) The one of aversive temperament arrives in the hall with an outfit that never calls attention or provokes judgment from another, other than it might be slightly tight or evidence of a shirt or a blouse that has hurriedly been tucked in. They kick off their shoes in the coat room, pushing other shoes to the side, irritated that they should even be there. In walking meditation, the aversive type hastily plows their toes into the ground with each step as the sound of their steps boom across the walking room. (laughs) I suspect you've heard those footsteps before. In the dining room, the aversive type is right behind the greed type and drumming their fingers and restlessly shifting from foot to foot. In seeing impermanence, the aversive temperament experiences fear and anxiety and wants to control it. In the yogi job of wiping a table, the aversive type clutches a sponge as they hurriedly wipe across the table with an audible huff and people automatically move out of their way. The aversive type thinks that they have it the hardest and even maybe the worst ones. And deep down, they feel that they are somehow to blame for this, although often their words reflect that others are to blame. It's said that a suitable place for a retreat for someone of of aversive temperament is a place that is beautiful that is, you know, very well proportioned, um, you know, can have nice paintings, uh, flowers, um, you know, forced refuge. (laughs) I'm I'm not trying to give a plug for the forced refuge, but (laughs) having worked there for a number of years, it was just very interesting to see that, you know, many times someone of this temperament would come there and 
it would just, it's like taking away all of the possible reasons for someone to be aversive. And then you see the tendency is still there, but you recognize it as just aversion. No, and so you, you aren't so caught into uh, blaming the outside world and just seeing this as a state of mind. <clears throat> so for practices that are useful for one of this temperament, concentration practice is very useful because it gladdens the mind. And you know all of the Brahma Vyaras are really helpful because they they help to soften the mind, to make it more malleable, so not so brittle, and it also is really balancing not just to see the suffering in life, but to see these beautiful qualities as we've talked about. You know, so it really helps to bring a balance into the mind, and you know, so that the mind becomes less judgmental and less caught in believing these judgments. So, when this tendency towards aversion is brought into the scope of practice, where we bring wise attention to it, it can actually turn into wisdom or wise discernment. You know, often when we react with aversion to something, it may be that we have seen something that is not quite right. And so rather than just addressing it in a way that can be heard, there's a react- reactivity there. But as we become more familiar and balanced, you know, it can be that the person of this temperament can say the difficult things that are hard to say, that really need to be said, and can say them very skillfully. And often, you know, this temperament has a very quick mind and can cut through um, quite quickly and see the truth and starts to align with truth in a very helpful and useful way. No, I always feel like people of this temperament can intellectually run circles around me. But often, you know, they just say things in a really brilliant, clear way. You know, very often when you hear someone speak um, and they do, they, they have a lot of clarity. They have really this strong, discerning uh, wisdom. So this is what can happen and does happen. These types are, you know, often not willing to stay on the superficial level. They want to see the truth. And so, you know, it can be helpful in this way. So then moving on to one of a deluded temperament. Um, Actually... You know, this is something that I'm very familiar with. And I remember the first time that I gave this talk, I had the sense that I was giving an experiential experience of what it is to be deluded. You know, it's that often, 
in a talk, it's a person who doesn't segue, doesn't give segues, and will just jump from topic to topic. And it may be that at some, you know, sometimes it doesn't feel really clear what they're pointing to, what they're trying to say. And, you know, I felt like when I first talked about this that I really, you know, dropped into that space of really feeling what it was like to be deluded. And, you know, with this, there is a lot of confusion, bewilderment, um, there can be dullness, a feeling as if we just can't see the nature of reality, which at times leads to a feeling of helplessness. Um, and just, you know, we're, we never feel sure how to clarify, how to, how to see more clearly. And, you know, the delusion is likened to mental darkness. And so, you know, at times... There can be different feelings to be a deluded type. At times it can be this feeling of, you know, when we're more in touch with the feeling of bewilderment, it does feel quite a dark and cloudy and confused. But at other times in life, you know, it's kind of like the bliss of ignorance and that one can actually kind of just bumble through life and you're not really seeing so much and so you're not in reaction to. And, um, you know, it gives a kind of a false sense of equanimity where it's through disconnection rather than being seen clearly and not reactive. But that there, there can be kind of an uh, easygoingness sometimes to one of a deluded temperament. I know they're often a person who has kind of a blissful smile on their face, but you know, they don't really know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> But I want to say right here, this is what I learned. <laughs> because, you know, my own perception of myself for so long was that I was stupid. You know, and that's really painful to always be believing that about yourself. And then, I did, you know, in hearing this talk from Sharon Salzberg, if you know her, she is a highly intelligent person, really sharp intelligence. And then there's another friend who is also a teacher, um, and he has... He was a lawyer before. He has a very sharp intelligence. And so, you know, I was really able to see, oh, it doesn't mean you're stupid. You just have a very muddled way of living, <laughs> which at times is painful. It has its benefits. You know, I get really confused when I go shopping. And I, you know, I can look at everything, but I can't make up my mind what to buy. So I save a bit of money. <laughs> so, you know... Um, <laughs> Hmm. we'll find one of a uh, deluded temperament does as I said doesn't have strong preferences so if you're doing a road trip they're really good to have as a roommate because you can always get what you want if you're a greedy or aversive temperament <laughs> not always I have to say <laughs> we can have um, preferences but you know it is often what happens is that we can see the good and bad in everything and so then it's like, well, how do you make a decision? You know, that, so it just becomes really difficult to make decisions. You know, I've, I've found that it's, it's quite painful to wake up from this because you, you start to feel that pain of, 
you know, not really knowing what's happening. You know, I've experienced it many times just driving down a road, and a road I have been down so many times before. But because I don't really take in the details of my surroundings, you know, it can appear like it's the first time I've been down this road. And so I might not know where I am. And it gets painful. And, you know, well, this one time it was quite a strong experience of what it's like to be of a deluded temperament. I was on Maui and I was staying with um, some friends there who lived up on the side of a mountain. And one day I was going to drive down the mountain to go to the beach. And it was the first time I'd made this trip. And, you know, I had just a, a certain window of opportunity to do it in. So it was really having to calculate everything out. I got a map out, you know, trying to plot my way, um, just trying to figure it all out. And, you know, I'd done the best I could getting everything together. I got in the car, and it was a really hot day. And I'm driving along, and there was no air conditioning in the car. My mind's not quite working right, and, you know, trying to figure things out. And finally, it took about an hour. I made it to the beach. I parked the car. I go into the changing room. And I put my hand in my bag to get my bathing suit, and I suddenly realized I forgot my bathing suit. And in that moment was the thought, it's so hard to be me. <laughs> you know, that it's, you know, I do things like this repeatedly. <laughs> and it was like, oh my God, you know. <sighs> but anyhow, this is what we wake up to. And we just start to feel, you know, it was like, for me, it was really feeling the fog, really feeling the befuddlement, the confusion. And that was what helped to start connect me, you know, not judging myself, not putting myself in a box about this, but just like, this is what confusion feels like. This is what dullness feels like. And, you know, there's times on retreat where there was just an abundance of dullness, of sleepiness, of fogginess. But this is what we wake up to. This is what we use. So, one of a deluded temperament arriving at the meditation center. Before arriving at the center, they had to call the day before just to check what time that the retreat actually starts. As they arrive at the center, they promptly park in the staff parking, not noticing the sign for retreat parking. As they venture into the building, they have a slight smile on their face, but they look the look in their eyes of one who is lost. They are easy to please with their yogi job and are likely to end up with a yogi job that is not suitable for them because of their physical limitations, but they neglected to see that it mattered. (laughs) It takes them time to find their room as they study the map that makes no sense at all. And finally, someone notices their confusion and takes them to their room. Now, that came from personal experience. (laughs) 
when they discover they have a roommate, they are ready to let the other one have their choice, unless, of course, it is another deluded type, and then they may spend hours trying to decide who should get what bed. The deluded, one of deluded temperament arrives in the hall with an unmatching sweatsuit, hair all awry, and their clothes are layered in a way that makes them look like a patchwork quilt. In leaving the hall, they hover in the coat room looking for where they might have placed their shoes. (laughs) In walking meditation, the one of deluded temperament almost trips with each step and looks unsure as to where to place their next step. When they are waiting in line, they like to go behind others so they can watch what dishes people are taking so they know what to do. (laughs) In seeing impermanence, the deluded type knows something happened, but they are not quite sure what. (laughs) In the yogi job of wiping tables, they see one dirty spot, and then another, and they jump from spot to spot in an erratic (laughs) manner, leaving behind pools of water. (laughs) So what's helpful in practice for one of a deluded temperament? It's that of working with continuity of mindfulness, because this is what helps to dispel confusion helps us to see clearly. And so, no, it can be helpful to work with something like the breath, to really watch the moment-to-moment changing of the breath, to really keep practice simple. If you offer too many um, forms of practice to one of a deluded temperament, it's like they never know which one to do. You know, and so, you know, just sit in this place of confusion. What should I do? It can also be helpful to work with the practice of noting because this helps to strengthen perception, to be able to recognize what's happening in one's experience. So a suitable environment for someone of uh, a deluded temperament is a safe environment that doesn't have too many different things to look at. (laughs) You know, just a safe, simple, um, beautiful environment that one can practice in. What can happen for one of this temperament is that, you know, there is a spacious quality in the mind that the mind isn't so reactive. You know, that the the delusion, delusion is present in all of these. And and with the one of the deluded temperament, it's, you know, could be called sheer delusion. And it isn't driven by the delusion of something, um, the enchantment of greed or or of the, the reactivity of the aversion. But it's just not seen clearly. And so out of the spaciousness, when we actually start to connect, it can transmute into equanimity. You know, the, the spacious mind that can hold everything and be non-reactive. And so, you know, this is what the shift can um, look like. Mm. 
It's said that one of deluded temperament experiences states of stiffness, torpor, agitation, worry, uncertainty, and holds on tenaciously with the refusal to relinquish. You know, you can see that. It's like you might um, come to the Dharma and you hear the teachings. And it really strikes something in you. But a tendency to hold on to the teachings itself, themselves because it has a sense of safety and refuge for what has felt like just this great sea of madness. And so one holds on to these teachings rather than looking to know for oneself directly in one's own experience. You know, and so at times the mind becomes quite stiff and rigid, trying to hold on to something that feels like a refuge in this um, way of bewilderment or uncertainty. So to remember with all of these temperaments that they do have, you know, they can transform into something beautiful. And that, you know, often we also experience non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, and not to overlook these not to become solid and rigid in the scene of these tendencies in our mind, to hold them very lightly. But, you know, it's it's like just becoming familiar with how this mind works. What are its tendencies? And then knowing what's helpful in the working with them. This is where it's useful, helpful. And to remember that you know, the greatest delusion of all is this, you know, the sense of there being a small, separate self. And so, in whatever ways that we create this sense of the small, separate self, just seeing if we can free it up, free it, you know, just to not take it so personally. And, you know, this is really my intention in giving this talk, that we not take these states to be who we are, to be I, me, or mine. These are all workable. These are all something that um, we can work with in our lives. So I'd like to share a teaching from the Buddha which really relates to greed, aversion, and delusion and working with these with mindfulness. The the name of the sutta is one that just really stuck with me when I read it. It jumped out, you know, and about why we do this. It's called For One's Own Sake. For one's own sake, diligent mindfulness should be made the mind's guard, and this for four reasons. Reasons. May my mind not harbor lust for anything inducing lust. For this reason, diligent mindfulness should be made the mind's guard for one's own sake. May my mind not harbor hatred towards anything inducing hatred. For this reason, diligent mindfulness should be made the mind's guard for one's own sake. 
May my mind not harbor delusion concerning anything inducing delusion. For this reason, diligent mindfulness should be made the mind's guard for one's own sake. May my mind not be infatuated by anything inducing infatuation. For this reason, should should be made the mind's guard for one's own sake. And as we all know, it's not just for one's own sake because we don't live in isolation, that we really become mindful of these states of mind, not just for our own sake, but for the welfare and the benefit of all beings. So seeing if we can develop a friendly relationship to these states of mind, to hold them lightly as they may repeatedly appear in our lives. To make a friend of greed, aversion, and delusion by way that they can transmute into wisdom. And so with this, I'd like to close with a teaching from a Burmese teacher, Sayadaw Ujodika. He says, I have come here so that I can have more time to go deeper into my own heart and mind. I want to become more acquainted with myself, to see all the conflicting motives, desires, wishes, ideals in my heart and mind. I want to be familiar with all the dark nooks and crannies of my mind and all the creeping and crawling spiders, scorpions, and vipers, all the lions and eagles, etc. Not that I want to drive them away. I just want to become a good friend to my mind, a kind and understanding friend. Unless I know them very well, they will not let me sleep peacefully. I want to get a clear idea of how to relate to people. So may we become friends with these minds to help us to live in harmony and peace in the world. So let's just sit for a moment. May all the wholesome energy of our practice be dedicated to all beings everywhere that they may know true peace and happiness. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.